Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside Drew, Howdy, TJ, Hello, and Augie. Yay! SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPEX, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPEX and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. Mars is a tantalizing goal for the next step in human exploration. However, the fourth rocky planet from the sun is a harsh world to live on. Terraforming offers the possibility of making Mars a new home for humans, but the challenge is immense. Today, we dive into some of the key aspects of Mars colonization and terraforming. Let us know what other topics you would like us to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email to specscast at gmail.com. We've got terraforming on the mind today. Um, let's briefly go over the scope of this discussion and rule out some of the pitfalls that conversations about terraforming Mars usually fall into, just right out of the way. Right. So firstly, we're just going to talk about Mars. We're not going to talk about the other bodies in in the solar system. Um, and also, we should define what we mean by terraforming, because the process of terraforming literally is making like Earth. We don't necessarily mean by what we're going to discuss achieving a, a copy of Earth on Mars. We don't mean that we're going to talk exclusively about the end goal where it's the same atmosphere, the same uh, pressures that we experience on Earth. We're talking about the early stages of colonization. Yeah, we're basically talking about making, uh, right, right now that we'll talk about um, the current state of how Mars, um, like how, how a human would react to Mars environment. We're just talking about making it a better place for humans to to live. Um, also, we're not going to get into um, the whole discussion about planetary protection and life that may already be on Mars. We're going to leave that for another time. So we covered in a very early episode whether to uh, go forward with going to the moon or Mars as a like first step for humans. And as a part of that, we talked about some of the immediate benefits that Mars has over most planetary bodies. Now, to kind of do a summary, Mars is one of the closer planets to us. Uh, so it's the fourth rocky planet from the sun. Uh, it takes There's a transfer window of about 26 months to get there. And we can get there with traditional propulsion anywhere from six to nine months. And as transportation improves, that can get reduced down to three months or even one month in the far future. So relatively close with time scale. If you look at some of the rocky moons in the outer solar system, even with advanced propulsion, you're talking months or years to get out there. And it also makes uh, trade and communication more difficult because the speed of light becomes a bigger and bigger obstacle when you get that far away from Earth. Talking about Mars itself, uh, it is... Not a rough analog to Earth like Venus is, but uh, as Elon Musk likes to say, it's a fixture-upper of a planet. But there's a lot of small things, which we'll talk about today, that can be done in the near to medium term that can make it a better place for humans to live on, rather than something like Venus, where in order for it to be hospitable at all for humans to live on, takes centuries of work and massive engineering to fix. So it's the kind of, it's 
a broken planet in a sense. It's not perfect for us to live on now, but it's probably the easier, easiest planet for us to fix up. Um, to go to the nearest comparison, the moon, uh, Mars has uh, an atmosphere, which helps with transportation. You can aerobrake to land on Mars. Uh, that atmosphere, we'll get into, has a great source of carbon dioxide that's literally in the air for colonists to use for uh, fuel production and other things. And that also gives a level of protection that you don't get on the moon, where the atmosphere helps to mitigate a lot of the micrometeorites uh, that might reach the surface, unlike the moon. Uh, and also, the air has provided some er erosion mechanics, so you don't have the fine razor uh, regolith that you find on the moon that gets into spacesuits and machines and causes damage. Uh, so it's a bit more hospitable just at first glance. So there are three factors that uh, bring us much closer to terraforming Mars, and they're all interrelated. And they are pressure, temperature, and the magnetosphere. Improving any one of these will improve the others and move us closer to having a Martian habitat that is similar to Earth. Pressure is extremely critical, and it's the only way, increasing the pressure is the only way that we'll be able to live on the surface of Mars without a pressure suit. Uh, right now, the pressure on Mars' surface is less than a single kilopascal, which is two orders of magnitude lower than it is on Earth. Earth at sea level is about 100 kilopascals. Why is that a problem? This, this is a major problem because of something called the Armstrong limit, uh, which is at 6.25 kilopascals. Any pressure below that uh, is basically the point at which water will boil at the temperature of the human body. This means that the water on the alveoli in, in your lungs starts to boil off, the liquid in your tongue and on your eyes will start to boil off, and it basically makes it so humans can't survive more than a few minutes without having a pressure suit on. Now, do we need to get it up to the full, we on Earth have 101.3 kPa? Do we need to get to that level before we can have people there? No, and that's the really cool thing. So uh, on Mount Everest, it's actually only 33.7 kilopascals. And while that's a super miserable place to live, people can do it without full body pressure suits. Um, all we need to do is get to something that's about uh, three times the Armstrong limit, about 19 kilopascals. You don't want to just go right to the Armstrong limit because that's still really dangerous. But if you can get to about 19 kilopascals, you could survive without a, without a pressure suit. Uh, you'd still need a pressurized oxygen mask that was just pumping in 100% oxygen, but that'd be a much more pleasant experience than living on a planet where going outside without a pressure suit literally kills you. How does the pressure of the atmosphere relate to the temperature there? Yeah, so one of the, one of the biggest reasons uh, Mars is so cold is that it has a really, really um, low-density atmosphere. Because Mars has this fairly thin atmosphere, uh, it creates an environment where um, there, there's, there's, there's no pressure. Basically, what the atmosphere does on the Earth is that you can think of it kind of as like a mass that just sits on you and, uh, and, and, and pressurizes the environment. Uh, on, on Mars, there's very low pressure. And so what we want to do is increase the temperature to increase the pressure. And the reason that that works is because there's a ton of water ice on Mars, and uh, this, is, this is mostly at the poles. And by melting this, basically increasing the temperature by about 4 degrees Celsius, will cause this water ice to sublime, which means it goes from a solid to a gas, and it will release all this water vapor into the atmosphere. 
and, and water vapor is much, much better at holding CO2 and, and holding a lot of the other uh, greenhouse gases that we've talked about previously. And this will slowly start to create an environment where we have a much, much higher pressure and it will warm the planet, which will make it more pleasant to live in for, for other obvious reasons because Mars is on average uh, minus 63 degrees Celsius. Uh, the, the third component is the magnetosphere. Uh, Mars does not have a magnetosphere. Uh, they have detected something at kind of the, the, the lower poles, and they think it's just kind of a trace magnetosphere that Mars may have had hundreds of millions of years ago. Um, but today there isn't one. And uh, this is a problem both because uh, the magnetosphere on Earth protects humans from uh, solar radiation, which while not a, a problem that prevents us from living on Mars, it will still increase our, our cancer rates and, and provide a risk to any colonists that may live there. The other major reason it's a problem is because solar winds actually suck the atmosphere out of, out of Mars. Um, what happens is about 100 grams per second are released from the atmosphere of Mars just because of the solar winds, and the magnetosphere would prevent this from happening. Um, now, 100 grams per second may not sound like a lot, but over the course of millions and millions of years, that really adds up. Uh, if we're looking at um, some, of the, some of the strategies that we're going to talk about for terraforming, the timescales for these are much, much shorter than, than millions and millions of years. So we, we would be fine just outpacing the, um, the basically outpacing the uh, solar winds ripping out the uh, atmosphere but it would still be useful to have the magnetosphere to uh, prevent that from happening. A lot of the methods, none of them is uh, an exclusive method. So these methods can be done uh, at the same time, they can be done at the same scale or at different scales, uh, then they all help contribute moving those dials uh, to where the, we'd like them at the end to have a more habitable environment. So with the... Uh, why and the what and why covered, let's talk about the how. So I want to start with the magnetosphere because this seems like one that, although, as Augie mentioned, we could outpace by adding gases faster than the atmosphere is stripped away. I think this is one that may be the easiest to tackle. At least there's there are models out there and studies out there that indicate that this could be achieved. We could make an artificial magnetosphere by taking advantage of the L1 point, which the, the Lagrange point of a body, Lagrange point 1, in between, well, in this case, in between Mars and the Sun. So if we were to put a permanent magnet out there that was large enough, had a large, large enough magnetic flux, and it's been modeled to be about between 1 to 2 Teslas, which is probably achievable, especially if we put resources towards it, that would protect it uh, to the same extent that Earth's magnetosphere protects Earth. Yeah, even though it's uh, it would be further away at L1, if you look at these models of how the solar winds interact with um, the atmospheres, it, they're called solar winds for a reason. Looking at it, it does kind of look like a fluid flow. It basically diverts the solar winds around the planet and kind of leaves a shadow shade the atmosphere of Mars to prevent it from being eroded away. Dude, this is why Elon Musk sent the Roadster towards Mars is because you just need one to two Teslas, and it will be fixed. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the, the surprising things that I found uh, while researching this, because uh, it, when you think about having a planetary-scale magnetic field, it seems so unachievable, so big. 
Uh, and I had seen some other stuff that I'll talk about a bit uh, to solve the problem that still were planet scale projects. But something like this where if you have a permanent magnet or electromagnet, uh, because that Sun-Mars L1 point is so far away, a relatively small magnetic shield can cover the whole planet is just a really, really cool idea that's like, that makes a ton of sense. And like, if, say that in an alternate timeline, we had been in the Mars in the 80s and had started terraforming in the 90s or something, we might not have thought of that at first, at the first attempt, and we would have gone down a different path entirely when there's a relatively simple, elegant solution to the problem there. Now, this is not easy, but this seems like a, a decent proposal, and I think that it would be worth studying more and maybe sending some missions to the L1 and, and see what happens if we put a permanent magnet out that far in front of Mars. But the bigger issues, and the ones that there are a lot more ideas about, are the temperature and pressure, and these are much more closely related because the magnetosphere helps protect the atmosphere, but there still isn't currently much of an atmosphere. Yeah, one of the one of the cool ways that I found to do this is actually to create uh, solar mirrors and put them in orbit around Mars. Basically, what this would be is a, a thin like PET film that expands out and it would be uh, set up at an angle so that rays from the sun would reflect off of it and directly hit the surface of Mars. What this does is it increases the angle of insulation from the sun and it increases the overall area of sunlight that Mars is getting. Mars is about 50% of the way further from the sun than Earth is, uh, but the biggest factor that uh, results in higher, higher temperatures from the sun is the angle of insulation. The angle is more important uh, up to certain distances because the light that actually hits the the light light that actually hits the surface gets absorbed into heat easier rather than just getting reflected away. Um, what that means is uh, basically, like as an example, Earth is further from the sun during the winter, and uh, in at least in the northern hemisphere, and that's because uh, in the summer, while the Earth is further away. Uh, the angle of the Earth compared to the Sun is such that the sunlight is directly hitting, uh, much more directly hitting the surface of the Earth. So with the North and South Poles of Mars, the light would tend to be kind of like uh, scattered away, like skipped across the surface. So these mirrors would make the light hit it straight on so it would be absorbed better? Right, right, exactly. That's exactly it. So Drew... Uh... As Augie mentioned about getting more sunlight at a more direct angle onto Mars, there's still uh, the physical properties of what Mars is made out of that tend to reflect light. Uh, Drew, can you tell us a way of solving that problem to make Mars more absorbent? Right. This one is really cool. I like this idea a lot. So as I think pretty much everyone listening knows, black, the, the color, uh, is because all the visible light that's incident on it is being absorbed. The this idea that's been put forward is to make Mars darker, to make it closer to black. And the way they would do this is by using dust or particulate from the surface of Phobos and Deimos, Mars's two moons, which are two of the blackest bodies in the solar system. So if we were able to coat Mars, or at least large areas of Mars, or areas that we wanted to inhabit with this dark dust, 
it would absorb and retain more of that light, which would be more thermal energy on the surface of the planet, which I, I love this idea of just harvesting the moons that are right there for colonization terraforming. So the the idea of making the or dusting the planet with something darker to absorb light, um, you don't just have to move, you don't just have to use the moons, right? Um, I've heard things about asteroid redirects and comet redirects. Does that come into play here? If you had a darker asteroid, it's essentially put darker material on the surface, and that's definitely a, a possibility. There's also been put forward this idea of using things like lichen. So if we could have really simple organisms from Earth that were capable of surviving in this less hospitable environment of Mars, if they were able to coat the surface, then they would reduce that reflection and also help generate uh, more thermal, or well, also help retain more thermal energy. But you mentioned the idea of these, of asteroids or comet redirects. And that's another really cool topic that relates more to the pressure. TJ, do you want to talk at all about what redirecting comets and asteroids would help with the pressure side of things? Sure. So uh, when you're talking about Mars, there's certain things that you can do to the system itself to make it more efficient, more effective to uh, energy. Um, but any civilization that has the industrial capacity to tear from the planet would also most likely have the ability to use resources in the immediate solar system. And uh, in the book Trilogy, the Mars Trilogy, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, they talk about the entire terraforming cycle of Mars from where it is today to a fully Earth-like planet towards the end of the book. And one of the methods they use uh, is bringing in comets and asteroids from the asteroid belt to not only add water, but volatiles, uh, nitrogen and more carbon and things like that, but also heat energy. And the way it's done is rather interesting. So you have matter and these asteroids in the asteroid belt, and with a relatively small kick uh, or acceleration, you can shrink their orbits so that they would intersect with Mars. And if you do all the math right, uh, they would intersect Mars' orbit while Mars is there and impact the, uh, the planet. So in 2013, the Chelyabinsk, this is Russia, Chel, Chelyabinsk, we're going to call it Chelyabinsk, I know I'm butchering the Russian name, uh, which was a uh, meteor, because it didn't hit the surface, meteor impact that was caught on a bunch of videos, and what you saw was a bright streak and then an explosion and shattered windows and car alarms and things like that, and that's called an airburst, where when you have an incoming object that's re-entering, uh, if it has a certain speed, a certain mass, and thermal characteristics, it'll hit the ground and cause an impact. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't have the sweet spot to make it through the ground, it will disintegrate in the atmosphere. However, conservation of energy is still true to that. And so when you have something moving at 5, 10, 15,000 kilometers per second relative to the planet, with thousands or millions of kilograms of mass behind it, that's a ton of kinetic energy. 
And when it hits the atmosphere, it's heating up and burning and creating plasma. It's dumping energy into the atmosphere. And then when it either explodes or hits the ground, the mass within the asteroid or comet is dispersed. And so using this method, you get three uh, advantages. One is you get uh, more energy to the system. You're getting all that kinetic energy dumped into the atmosphere. And then for the actual raw materials, you're getting more water, more metals, more carbon uh, that either get dispersed into the atmosphere, uh, which help thicken it, or it gets spread across the surface in a relatively pure state that you can take and refine. Um, so it's a really interesting way of utilizing a asteroid mining economy to uh, help speed up the terraforming process. Right, and inherently, if you are adding more of these volatiles to the atmosphere, since it's going to burn up in the atmosphere, and it will be different gases there, that adds to the mass and therefore the pressure that the atmosphere consists of, which is what you need to address the point that Augie talked about earlier of achieving a pressure above the Armstrong limit where people could more comfortably colonize Mars. It's a really nice system because in the very early days when you have very few people living on Mars, the asteroids and comets might not fully burn up and hit the surface, just giving a little bit of water and energy. But as the atmosphere thickens, larger and larger uh, objects will disintegrate. And as 100, 200,000 years down the line, when humans spread across more and more of the surface, and there's a greater chance of a impact on a Martian colony, uh, there's more and more protection. So it's a, kind of a system that you can start setting up and it's a little bit self-regulating, which is nice for a lot of these long-term projects. Redirecting asteroids and comets, like that sounds like a great system and it so seems to work and tick all the boxes, but that's a really big technological uh, leap to, to say that like today we could redirect asteroids with this precision toward Mars, etc., I don't think the asteroid redirect is that far out, um, such that if you can find an asteroid and um, use ion thrusters or something like we already looked at when we talked about the asteroid redirect mission that NASA canceled, um, if you could find one that has you know these chemicals on it and just redirect it such that the orbital mechanics work out, so in you know five ten years it hits the surface of Mars, that would be fairly low energy to do, and it could create a huge, huge boon to the, like, I don't actually think the, the basically the asteroid redirecting is, is yeah. that far It's out also not idea. that crazy. I guess what I'm saying. It's one of the more realistic, in my opinion. It's something that we're already trying to study asteroid redirect. Yeah, yeah with like a, a small, like, what was it, like a four meter boulder. So like, if you have a water comet and you send some kind of spacecraft that attaches to that, you can use solar energy or a nuclear reactor to take the water, melt it down, and make a very inefficient rocket motor using steam. And over long periods of time, that'll change the orbit enough to hit Mars. So it's something that is like, you need the ability to do significant work out in the asteroid belt, which we're not at that point yet. But the, I like to think of it as the energy required and the time required or the manpower required is rather minimal. Asteroids cool. Is there anything that's a little more near-term? So there is a plan that is much, much more near-term, but still just as much sci-fi. 
And uh, that is the offhand joke of nuking the poles from Elon Musk on The Tonight Show, where if you have uh, nuclear bombs, nuclear or thermonuclear fusion devices that can deliver a burst of energy, and you direct those at a high altitude over the poles, equivalently, the equivalent is you're generating a second or third artificial sun, where using the same process as the sun, fusion, you're creating uh, electromagnetic energy that's impacting the surface of Mars, heating up the uh, polar ice caps. And that's a system that we currently don't have with our ICBM arsenal vehicles that can send projectiles from the Earth's surface all the way to Mars. But with rather modest upgrades in the rocket technology we have, stuff that we're seeing with Vulcan, BFR, Falcon Heavy, is something that theoretically be started within five, ten years. Now there's lots of political uh, issues and potential environmental concerns, uh, but that is a near-term thing that we have the stockpile of these devices uh, that we could be put to use in a constructive way that would help start that process. Now, in order for it to be meaningful, you're talking about detonating a nuke above the poles every couple minutes, every hour, every day, every year for years, decades, long time frame. So it's a it's still a huge engineering undertaking, but it's something that could be achieved within five years. Politically, not so much, but technologically something we can do right now that has the same concept of adding external energy that's not from the sun. Essentially, what you're, you're doing is you're adding the energy that will sublimate the poles into the atmosphere, right? So that's something that we, we want to do. And it, this is a highly accelerated version of the mirrors idea, which if you use those mirrors that we talked about earlier, that would sublimate all the ice by putting more light incident there, this would happen in a, you know, a fraction of the time. Because the energy required has been theorized to be about half of the energy that was released during the little boy detonation uh, during World War II. So we already have the bombs that could do this. Yeah. It's one of those things that's like, it's a nice idea because we have all the pieces lying around, but it's not something that you would say, if we found a new planet, if there's, if we found a new planet, it's like, all right, how are we going to terraform this over the next 100,000 years? Going for a consistent stream of thermonuclear weapons is not the first choice. It's just something that's we like. We have thousands of them here on Earth. We have rockets that could send them to Mars. But something that's way more sustainable is like those solar mirrors where you construct them over a decade or so. And then they're there and they're consistent. And Augie talked about how they are self-steering using the solar sail principle. That's a much more sustainable uh, method than... Uh, something that like nuking the poles. The only benefit is that you can take the energy from the explosion and direct it exactly to the point you want. You want a high intensity light right on the poles to melt them as fast as possible. What I like about the concept of melting the poles is that, again, theorize what models show based on our current understanding of the composition of Mars, that there's still about one-seventh of the water that was once on Mars that has otherwise been lost as the atmosphere has been lost or lost 
as it's been absorbed into the ground, uh, there's enough water there to, f to still fill up oceans worth. So I think that's really cool if we were able to sublimate it. I like my, my sci-fi uh, thing, windmills. So this is in Red Mars. They build little rickety windmills that take the moving air, convert that into electricity to run heaters. And as Drew mentioned with the lichen, they have a little box that they heat up so that the lichen can survive. And they build hundreds of thousands of these tiny windmills that generate some energy or thermal energy. And eventually, there are other steps to increase the atmosphere with the lichen survive. And then you have all these little seed boxes of lichen that can be released and grow rapidly. It's really cool. That's a cool idea. Why wouldn't you use solar panels over windmills? Because it's, it's much easier to fabricate those from like a colonist first day to build solar cells. You have to either bring them from Earth, so I can't build them. You have to have a full uh, silicon microfab on Mars versus metal metal and copper for electric water. Well, then why is Elon's plan to go all solar on Mars? In all their mock-ups, I haven't seen a single windmill. I've only seen solar panels. Because solar is easy to bring with you. So why not bring with you the solar panels to heat up the lichen? Well, this was this was an effort of, well, in the, the book, and the story, it's a side project that the colonists do, right? They have scrap metal around. They they build this little side project. They're using nuclear reactors for base power and solar panels for other stuff. Um, but like, that's something that can be, you can build the entire system on Mars, right? You have iron, uh, I'm sure there's a source of copper or something. So you have, you stuff to build a windmill, stuff to build a heater and a, a electric motor and like everything's there, right? Cause whenever you have to bring stuff outside the system in, it's very expensive. I don't know. I think that that idea has already been outdated, though, because of the BFR. I mean, the BFR, they're going to try and build it so that it can get 330,000 pounds to Mars, and it's going to be fairly low cost. The cost is going to be the, the, the largest cost is going to be actually manufacturing the payload at that point, more so than uh, if they achieve full reusability, more so than actually the flight there. And, and so I think if, if, we can solve the economics of it, the economics in actually manufacturing this stuff, which is going to be cheaper on Earth than it is on Mars, then it's it's much more feasible to just ship it there. The one thing that we haven't there. talked about is heavy industry, right? When you have the ability to cheaply send material to the surface of Mars and large objects, you can build heavy machinery. And if you land at one of the uh, non-polar ice deposits and you have solar panels, you have a nuclear reactor, you can take liquid water, you can start emitting water vapor, you can start take binding carbon dioxide with water to methane. Uh, that's a closed cycle, right? Because you're taking the atmosphere, burning it back into the atmosphere. Uh, but when you add water vapor through crops or whatever loss, lossy system the colonists might be using, you can start contributing to the atmosphere at a small rate in heavy industry where you can take volatiles from the soil. Um, there's a lot of, uh, not acids, those percolates. There's a lot of percolates in the soil that you can take and break down and you can release those into the atmosphere. And the whole idea is pollute. Like we're trying here on earth to pollute as less as, as small as amount possible on Mars, pollute as much as possible. Like use energy, use solar energy and use stored resources 
and get stuff out of the soil that's locked in the soil out into the atmosphere. And within 10, 20 years, if it's a successful colony, you'd have a big manufacturing base that's dumping tons and tons and tons of new matter into the air. Uh, and that's the, the near-term, really achievable system. On the topic of converting some of the, the things that are on the surface already uh, into parts that could be in the atmosphere, there's actually funded research uh, at the NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts where they're looking at making these little uh, biosphere corkscrew-type things that would go up on another rover that they would use extremophile like algae or other uh, or microorganisms that could potentially survive on Mars. They don't need oxygen. Uh, there's evidence they could survive the cold. Uh, but these would be put into the Martian soil in areas where there's evidence that there's liquid water. There's a phase change from solid to liquid at different times of the year. And if they if these organisms could then convert that water through photosynthesis into uh, oxygen, gaseous oxygen, uh, the part of this experiment would be sensing that, and that would be kind of the, the first step towards proving that we could do something like lichen on the surface. But it's there's a lot of material that's trapped in the soil that's already available on Mars. This is not for large-scale terraforming, but it's an interesting project that's under research. The easiest, cheapest, and fastest way to terraform Mars is to use the material on the planet. When you start trying to bring in comets and asteroids and other things, it becomes very expensive and very long-term. And if you can take, hey, there's iron oxide pretty much everywhere on Mars, Let's take this iron oxide, break it down, retrieve the elemental iron, release free oxygen. Uh, then you can start contributing to that, you know, greenhouse and industry pollution effect. Um, and like, just try to get as much stuff out of the dirt into the air is kind of the, the key because we can, as Martian colonists, protect ourselves from cold. We'll have our spaces for pressure, but as soon as we can start polluting in a good way we can start because unless you're going to bring everything from outside you have to melt the ice the polar ice caps you have to release the co2 you have to release the water and so you need to raise the average temperature and as we talked about with uh, you either add more energy so that's through uh, solar mirrors or some other method and you have to thicken the atmosphere and once you get those two up so the temperature is at four degrees, then things start progressing rapidly. It's still decades, centuries, but then the human effort, the human initiative doesn't have to be so intense. Uh, so that's the near-term goal is to unlock the runaway greenhouse effect uh, that we're so scared of here on Earth. We can just send all the hairspray that was made in the 80s. Yeah, and like that's a, a concept because like if we're able to use local materials to build more complex molecules that are more effective greenhouse gases, CO2 is a big scary word here on Earth, but it's not the best greenhouse gas. If we can get uh, methane, like if we can just pull, take carbon dioxide and mix it with water and release gaseous methane, we can increase the effectiveness of the carbon in the atmosphere 
by a huge percentage. So like we might be generating fuel for rockets and using methane in internal combustion engines around, but if free methane gets vented in the atmosphere, that's a huge win for a terraforming effort in the near term. Another big thing is like there's having the end goal of a fully breathable atmosphere is something that's really long-term. And there's a big discussion about whether you can do a short-term win of increase the pressure of the atmosphere, increase the temperature of the atmosphere in the short term and be not hospitable to humans. So it's going to be a lot of nasty stuff you don't want to breathe in, not enough oxygen. And then doing a long-term transition from high CO2, high methane to an oxygenated atmosphere. So allow humans to live on the surface with pressurized masks within centuries and then potentially make it Earth-like in millennia rather than going for Earth-like from the get-go because adding more CO2 is very counterintuitive. CO2 is poisonous to humans, especially at 95% concentration. So it's like, oh, we should take CO2, break it down into oxygen and carbon, store that carbon somewhere, scrub the atmosphere of carbon, uh, and release the oxygen to raise the percent, the relative percentage of oxygen. But that's probably not the quickest way to get to a better, more habitable Mars in the near term, even though it solves the long-term goal of just like Earth. So that's an important thing to consider. I think that I don't think we'll have the the near midterm goal, I guess, of no pressure suits, just gas mass on Mars in our lifetime, if we start now. But if we can see positive up into the right trends in all the right categories by the time that we retire or die of like Mars is on a trajectory so that our kids who might be living on Mars will have will not have to wear a spacesuit. Right. As long as the slope of those lines is at a appreciable rate, I think that's a good t- goal to strive for. If those slopes are basically flat and we're just using Mars as a base where it's rough and, and hard and we're trying our best not to pollute it for a variety of reasons, then that's going to be a, it's going to take a long, long, long time for Mars to be nicer to be for, to humans. Uh, from my perspective, realistically, um, I think a lot of these concepts of using what's on Mars and um, using the the composition of the gases and things that are already there to make localized areas of for habitation, very reasonable. Um, we might be able to see those in our lifetimes, especially with the average age increasing nowadays. But um, I think the, the real challenge comes at tackling this problem at a global scale. So... Um, I'm not expecting to, to step on Mars, um, without a spacesuit before I die, but I, I think science is starting to, you know, like technology is catching up, uh, with the futurists that, um, have envisioned life on Mars, uh, or that have envisioned human habitation on Mars and stuff. So, um, it's an interesting time for sure. If we're wrapping up with closing thoughts here, um, I'll just give my opinion, which is that I, I agree that we probably won't get the opportunity to walk on Mars without spacesuits and oxygen masks in our lifetime. Although, as everyone knows from previous episodes, we strongly believe we probably will get a chance to walk on Mars in our lifetimes. 
Um, and, and one of the things that I think will make this possible, though, kind of the biggest barrier, and we didn't talk about this as part of the episode, but it's it's not the technology. In my mind, the technology, most of the things we talked about are, are reasonably feasible, um, and there's probably some other technologies that we'll uncover over the next few decades that will also be feasible. The problem is the economics and being able to incentivize people and organizations to actually do these things that will heat up the surface of Mars. And this is one of the things I've actually been thinking about a lot from, from playing the board game Surviving Mars, or, or sorry, that's a video game, the board game Terraforming Mars, which is, you know, we weren't sponsored to, to do this or anything like that, but it's a super cool uh, board game. You guys should check it out if you're interested. And it's all about, um, basically, you com- you're a corporation and you compete with other corporations on the surface of Mars to try and expand your business. And what the government of Mars has done is basically incentivize the terraforming of Mars so that your business actually ends up with more and more perks if you contribute to the terraforming of Mars. Uh, There's a ton of reasons why I think this could make a lot of sense. Uh, First and foremost is it actually creates an incentive structure for people to go out and spend the money to redirect an asteroid to Mars. Otherwise, there's not really any incentive by anybody to do that. And um, even if colonists are living at Mars or living on Mars, um, it, it may not be feasible for them just to fund some non-for-profit to go and uh, uh, you know launch a, a rocket to redirect an asteroid. The other reason why I think uh, if, if you can you know incentivize the the terraforming of Mars via um, through, through the government, it, it would be beneficial is because it would actually prevent us from ending in a situation where there's a runhouse greenaway effect like we have in Earth. Uh, you know, this is super, super far out, but one of the other concerns is if we just pollute and pollute and pollute and pollute, what happens when we get to the point where we are today on Earth where we want to slow down and we can't slow down? Um, so if you kind of start with that incentive structure in place, you can end up in a situation where uh, those incentives are capped so that you only go to a certain point, and then the businesses know they need to shift in order to maintain profit. Yeah, building off what Augie said, uh, it's it's really hard to commercialize terraforming of Mars because everything you do affects the whole planet. Like, you're dealing with the planet as a system. Yeah, you can build a fancy dome or, like, an underground colony and make that nice little spot nice. Um, but these terraforming effects, they are global. And uh, as I mentioned with the uh, make a lot of fast changes and then a long coast to Earth-like, uh, the earliest stage of terraforming Mars is add more carbon to the atmosphere, add more greenhouses, gases to the atmosphere. And eventually you need to stop and say, no, we need to transition to oxygen. And that's a way more expensive, way harder process because you have all this free CO2 out that you can melt and release, but you have to break CO2 down into oxygen so that people can actually breathe it uh, down the road. Because the end result, like, we don't want Mars to become like Venus with an incredibly intense greenhouse gas effect that has an almost inhospitable surface to humans. We want to have something that's at Earth. So being able to stop and slow but down. To is, be clear, nobody is ever going to do this before colonists yeah. are there because otherwise there's no incentive. Nobody's going to spend the money to nuke the poles to create a planet that could be more habitable if nobody's actually living yeah, the there. The first years are going to be rough on the, the Martian tundra, uh, unprotected. And decades, decades later, it might get better. The way I look at this is that although I'm, I'm relative to you guys pessimistic about 
how soon any of this will happen. Um, I think that we will have boots on the ground in our lifetime, and I think there will be a lot of science done early days and hopefully get some industry started. But I think we need to start the process of terraforming now if it's ever going to happen. There's that proverb, best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago, second best time is now. And we're talking about timescales much longer than the growth of a tree. So I think we need to, at the very minimum, encourage studies, feasibility studies, more in depth of what we've talked about. Because, you know, how are we going to actually put a magnet at L1? How are we going to get asteroids or comets or materials externally onto Mars? How are we going to get the, the surface of Phobos and Deimos onto Mars? How are we going to build and then get into position these mirrors? How, how are any of these ideas that have been put forward going to work? And I think that's where the feasibility studies need to start pretty much immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, a concept out there that once we colonize Mars, then we can start terraforming Mars. But as soon as the first people who are going to stay on Mars permanently step foot on Mars, terraforming begins. Anything they do, anything they dig, build, burn, refine, becomes part of that process. And it's never too early to plan out the medium to long-term plan to get to the end goal that we want, right? We don't want to have uh, a barren Mars. We want a green, lush, wet Mars. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to future episodes and tell your friends. Additional resources that we used to research for this episode um, and some further reading can be found at blog.specscast.com where we publish articles for each episode and additional articles in between. Let us know what you think of the show. Leave a review on iTunes or your podcast service of choice or reach out to us via Twitter at RITSpecs. You can also subscribe to email notification for future blog posts and episodes by visiting blog.specscast.com slash subscribe. We'll be back next week for another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology.